Welcome to the Best Work Podcast. I'm your host, Ben Henley-Smith. The goal of this show is to uncover the personal stories of successful software engineers, founders, thinkers, and leaders who are all navigating their own working journey. Finding our best work is often a hidden journey, uncovered through an ongoing conversation with ourselves and the world around us. Every one of these episodes is packed with timeless ideas you can apply to your own life. In this conversation, I speak to Katie Hinson, the head of product and data at Lightdash and the former senior product data scientist at Monzo. We explore the personal rewards of introspection, becoming a data scientist, working at Monzo and knowing enough about yourself to say no. Katie's story is as authentic as it is rare. The greatest minds look inward to understand their own minds as if they were machines, ready for programming. Katie explores where her self-awareness took her and the decisions that she made as a result. We touch on how outgoing people are not always the best managers, when the right time is to give up, and how to balance creativity and decision-making as an individual and as part of a team. If finding our best work is a hidden journey, then Katie uncovers hers for us. What do you think you would have done if your brother hadn't been a software engineer? I studied something called computational ecology. Actually, so I I went to university to study women's studies and Latin. Um, That was what I entered university to do. And I wanted to be the first female prime minister of Canada to last for more than two terms. That was my like dream as like an 11 year old kid. Wow. There are not many 11 year old kids who have that dream. Yeah. Yeah. It was special. (laughs) Let's just say that. Um, So I went to university convinced that I was going to do international law and my two generations of family are engineers so I was the first person to generate three generations, I guess, to not be an engineer. And so I went to university being like, I'm going to study women's studies, be a lawyer. And then after the first year, we were forced to take a science class. That's how the Canadian university system works. You have to take like sciences if you're in arts. And I loved it. And I like was obsessed with biology. So then I ended up becoming a quantitative biologist. So I think that if I had no, if I didn't have my brother helping me like figure out what I wanted to do, I still would have ended up in sciences like STEM because it was just something that really interested me. Um, but I wouldn't have gotten into coding as early on. So I think I, I would have eventually been forced to learn how to code, but I think that I would be way further back in terms of my kind of experience in software related industries do you think you would have found it if the canadian education system hadn't forced you to to explore science yeah it's a really good question um i'd like to hope so (laughs) that would kind Mm. of suck to end up like 10 years down the line and hate my job um I think that I've always been a problem solver. And so law was, there's still a lot of problem solving in law. Um, 
I'm not sure I would have gone quite as far into like maths and sciences as I had because mm-hmm. um, I started a lot earlier than I would have expected. But I think I would have gone more into um, like uh, law related to biology or med- medical kind of things because uh, it was mm. something that always interested me. So how did you make the leap from academia to startup and Saitora? So I was doing my master's degree and about halfway through, I did a research degree. So I wrote a thesis and about six months in, I realized that I didn't want to do that for the rest of my life. I really didn't like research. I loved exploring ideas but I didn't like the bureaucracy around it and um the kind of politics of what research becomes popular and why and it's it it just getting funding and things like that it was like do you use the word climate change in your thesis and for me it just it felt like I wasn't Mm. actually making a difference um so about halfway through my master's degree, I, yeah, I started looking for jobs in the industry. Cause I was like, if I'm going to make a difference, I have to learn how to properly code, not how to like code for academics. Um, and I was living in London. So in London, you either move into insurance or you move into banking. <laughs> and so yeah, I did fintech that. Now. Yeah. yeah. So I kind of, um, I basically went wherever people would take me and I looked for an interesting job and Saitora was somewhere that sounded really interesting. I was more interested in machine learning at the time and I, I'm not so much anymore, but they were doing a lot of kind of machine learning stuff. And yeah, I jumped at the opportunity that I was given and went from there. I think getting the first job is the scariest bit. And then once you have your first job, it's, it's so much Mm. easier out of academia to kind of keep finding other jobs. How did you go about it practically? That first jump, how did you do it? Yeah, so um, there was a lot of research into where to find jobs. I used AngelList was the company mm. um, and LinkedIn as well. Um, and I did a lot of online prep. So a lot of answering questions in online interview prep. You can find so much content online nowadays mm-hmm. um the the big thing for me was spending a lot of time being able to tell a clear story about why I wanted to leave academia because if you weren't able to do that then you you've already lost them mm-hmm. at the first stage everyone's gonna ask you why you're leaving so you may as well be able to answer it well mm-hmm. um and then the other big thing was learning how to communicate sl- like data analyses effectively that took me a couple of tries in because a lot of the technical interviews that they'll do um but just really practicing interviewing so i did online practices and then i practiced with other people in person and that was really kind of the the big part of getting a job Mm. um then also writing your cv there's there's a bunch of resources online for doing that Mm -hmm. but really the thing is preparing for interviews and learning how to interview for uh non-academic jobs what were the challenges of that transition from academia to industry yeah so 
the the hardest the biggest difference between being an academic and being in an industry is that the goals that you have are set by other people and the work that you're doing is trying to drive business goals not trying to do research for the sake of doing research and that's a mindset that's a really big shift from academia because you're not just kind of running after ends that might lead to nothing you're your everything you do has to have an outcome and you have to get really good at figuring out the highest impact outcome from your work and you don't learn that in academia um and it's this like business sense that people talk about is that was the biggest challenge in the first part of kind of getting a job outside of academia otherwise there's like habits so things like how to run a meeting those are things that you kind of pick up over time but mm. um learning about things like what's a KPI what's retention and growth and how do we define these things in a business and how do you who do you talk to if you have a problem um it was those were kind of yeah the biggest things were definitely around business goals and tying business goals to your work it sounds like from quite early on you're picking up the wider responsibilities of things that are around you and above you you've joined as a data analyst but the things that you reference there are all things that feel mission critical to the company rather than mission critical to being a data analyst yeah um i think that i definitely am someone who likes to get things done I don't just like being a participant. I want to kind of be involved in the decision making. So, my experience was quite different to a lot of other people's experiences. I got thrown into management, not thrown. I got put in placed gently into management quite early on. Um and so I think my experience in terms of how your work impacts the wider business was probably quite different to a lot of people starting out in in really big organizations where they're never going to talk to an executive. Um so yeah, I think that the the way I thought about my work affecting the company was I had a big picture kind of image from early on starting mm-hmm. and it's stuck with me. It must have been quite a a, a rip for you to move to Monzo after Saitora, given that you've you're thrown into management and your your first is this your first experience outside of academia. When did you decide that it was the right time to do something new and eventually go to Monzo and how did you how did you work through that decision making process? Yeah. Um I am a terrible manager. <laughs> I realized that relatively quickly at Saitora. I think one of the biggest lessons I learned from leaving Saitora was that uh great people people or sorry, outgoing people don't make the best managers. And I think it's a very easy assumption to make that people who are outgoing and sociable will be good people managers. Um in reality there's so much to being a manager that has nothing to do with it being outgoing um and i'm really i don't enjoy 
helping. I enjoy helping other people. I don't enjoy being responsible for other people's uh, career development. So I learned that relatively quickly at Saitora. And I, after kind of a year and a bit there, I realized that I had so much to learn about how to do my job properly. And when you're at a really small company, you tend to be teaching yourself a lot of things. And I got to the point of realizing that actually to be really good at my job, I needed to see other people who are really good at my job. So that's when I started looking at other opportunities. And I came across Monzo's jobs and ended up applying there, which was an amazing decision and a really great experience. At what point did you realize that you didn't want to be a a people manager anymore and that your outgoing nature wasn't suited to being a manager? When I had to help people with coming up with career development plans, I am horrible at planning career trajectories. Like for myself, for others, it's even worse. And I realized that it was really mentally exhausting to think to have to think about other people's careers and planning other people's career trajectories um, because I had no experience in it. I, I knew I was going to do a bad job because I didn't know how to do it myself. And so as soon as you don't know how to do something yourself, you shouldn't be teaching other people how to do it. So I kind of really quickly realized that this was not the right position for me to be in. Um, because I was, I guess, self-aware enough to know that I, I didn't know how to do it, so I couldn't help other people doing it. How did you... It's really tricky balance between that self-awareness that you've developed and listening to yourself in those moments versus kind of doing the Richard Branson and saying yes and just going with the opportunity. Like, where's the line there? Yeah, if it makes you happy... I think if it's something that like excites you and made, is interesting to you, mm. then absolutely say yes to it, even if you are kind of figuring it out along the way. If it's something that stresses you out more than it makes you happy, then don't don't do it. Mm. I think is a pretty a pretty safe way of like balancing on that line, mm. and that's definitely the way that I've approached it. Um, yeah. If it if it's not fun and you don't enjoy it, then you probably shouldn't be doing it. Or it shouldn't be your main job. Everyone's got to do stuff that they don't love sometimes. But it shouldn't kind of be like the thing that you have to do for 80% of your day. Did you love it at Monzo? Yeah, it was incredible. It was a really great experience. And so is Saitora. I learned so much. Um, Monzo is one of those places where... You go to work there and you understand why they're so successful. Um, yeah, I, I learned a lot about how to be really good at my job because I was surrounded by so many people that were incredibly good at what they did. What do you mean by when you go in there, you just knew why they were successful? What what characteristics were there of the company at that time that told you that it was going to work? I think that... There's a lot of people who have really big ideas, but have no way of explaining how they'll get there. So there's kind of these investor pitches that all startups will always give you. 
And they'll give you these great lofty ideas of, you know, this is what the future of AI will look like. Or like, this is what the future of insurance or banking or art, I don't know, whatever will look like. And it's exciting and it's awesome. And then you ask them, okay, well, what are you doing today to, to get there? And it's, and it's really unclear. And at, at Monzo, there was this really clear idea. Anytime someone gave you an idea, they had a way of getting there. And so these were people that were incredibly good at thinking big, but also executing on what they're thinking about. And in a way that they brought people along with them. So there was always a voice kind of at the company that had these ideas and then they would bring everyone along the ride with them. So everyone was bought into things and everyone was excited about building the things that we'd talked about, if that makes sense. Was that your impression during the interview process from the outside? Like, was that the, was was there any difference between the two? Um, I think the interview process, I probably didn't get that sense. Uh, I think they're just a big company with a big name. And mm. when you're interviewing at places like that, you're kind of like, this would look great on my resume. Yeah. And then you get there and you're like, wow, this is like great for my life, <laughs> not just yeah. my resume. So it was definitely, yeah, you got the vibe of these people are incredibly good at what they do. But you get that at a lot of places, I find, especially in somewhere like London mm. or San Francisco. Mm. People are really good at what they do. Um, it's whether or not the whole company is good at doing what they do together. Um, that's kind of hard to get to in an interview. How did that take you to Light Dash now? I was at Monzo for almost two years. And by the end of it, I I really wanted to leave London. That was one of the biggest things. I I was living in London during lockdown and I'm from Canada where I spent a lot of time outside and you couldn't really do that. Mm. Or if you did, it was in sidewalk. Um, and I also got to a point at Monzo that I, I knew what to expect. Like I, I got really good at doing my job and I could do my job with a bunch of different teams and I didn't see how I was going to grow quickly in the next six months. I I kind of like, I knew what every day looked like. And I'm not someone that enjoys doing the same thing over and over again. I'm not, I'm not a creature of habit. Mm. So I decided that I wanted to change something. And I actually, I wrote out a bunch of things for where I wanted to what I wanted to accomplish and what it was like at Monzo versus kind of other companies that I was looking at. And so I, I really started thinking about where I wanted to be. And it was, I wanted to be an independent an individual contributor. I didn't want to manage people. I wanted to be someone that had impact on business level decisions, but I wasn't the only person responsible for making those decisions. So I didn't want to be like a CEO. I didn't want to be, you know, head of, business development or something. I wanted to be someone who's heavily involved in helping execs make the right decisions, but not actually being responsible for decisions. And so I wrote down a bunch of these kind of a list of things like that, of things that I knew I wanted from my next role. And 
then Oliver and Hamza uh, chatted to me. I used to work with them at Saitora and they found out that I was looking for a job. So they asked me if I wanted to come join them. And at the time we were actually doing something really different. It was automated data monitoring. So basically testing, making sure that your data tests are running effectively and writing data for tests for you and things like that. Um, but when you're joining a company that small, you're really joining the people, you're not joining the product. And yeah, it felt like a good move. I, I knew that there would be new things that I didn't know how to do and I would learn a lot. Um, so that was, that was definitely a great opportunity. When you say that when you join a, when you take a new job, you're joining a team, you're not joining a product. How do you go about working out whether that team is the the right one for you? It obviously helps if you've worked together in the past, but I guess there must have been all different types of people you've worked with in the past too. How How do you go about assessing that and knowing whether that team is right for you? Yeah, I think at larger companies, it's less about the team and it's more about the product. Um, mm. Or it it's it's more about the product than it is at bigger companies. I think it's still really about the team. But in larger companies, it's you can tell a lot about how people work by how they interview you. They should show you kind of the ways that they think through problems by how they interview you. And if if you feel uncomfortable or it doesn't go well in interviews solving problems, you probably won't work well together. So you can tell a lot from interviews at larger companies whether or not you'll you'll work well with the team. You also, I think there's a really big piece of self-awareness of knowing the kinds of questions that you should be asking um, to, to see if that company's team will suit you. One of the questions I always love to ask is, um, Imagine if I were at this company for three months and you were to kind of say, you know, wow, Katie, she's done such a great job. She's like been such a great person to hire. I'm so happy we brought her on. What what would I have done to have gotten that kind of praise? Or what would I have done to gotten there at, at Monzo or Light Dash or wherever? And that really gives you an idea of what success looks like at that company. And if that idea of success matches with your ambitions of success. So I think for larger companies, there's definitely ways of figuring out if you if you work similarly. I think if you're joining a really small company, you you like when I say small, I mean less than six people. Um, you want to make sure you can have a conversation with them easily, but you also want to make sure you don't have the same skills as anyone else at the company. And I think that's a bit harder to figure out, especially early on in your career. But if you're joining a really small company, you want to be really good at the things you're really good at and not really good at the things that the CEO is good at. Otherwise, you're not going to work effectively together because, yeah, you'll be good at the same things and you don't need to be. You said that you had to develop a, a deeper sense of self-awareness and one has to in order to ask the types of questions that will really get to the heart of the questions that the answers that you're looking for what did you mean by that when you when you said developing that sense of self-awareness yeah 
the you you have to know what you're bad at because you're guaranteed to be asked that in an interview you know what are you bad at and then you have to be like oh but it's like this good bad thing um so knowing what you're not good at knowing what you're really good at as well because you should be selling your skills in an interview um you should be making sure that you're making it really clear the things that you're really good at so knowing what you're good at is important because then you can make sure that you're selling that in your interview so an example of that is so i was gonna say say, how do you develop that self-awareness yeah it's sitting down and thinking a lot i think you have to you have to spend you have to invest the time getting to know yourself as much as the interviewer is going to get to know you and get to know the company um because it could be an amazing company but you could not fit into it and i think that takes your time to figure out if you're going to fit in somewhere or not did you do anything specific to help you with that was it were there any tools that you use or experiences that you had that gave you the kind of confidence to self-reflect i don't think there's any specific tools as I said at the beginning, I'm really bad at planning. Like my my brother is insanely good at this. He, every like every New Year's, he has like monthly, quarterly, yearly plans. Oh, no. And I'm like, he's one of those brothers. He's he's crazy. It's crazy. I don't know how he does it. I can't do. I can barely plan what I'm gonna have for breakfast tomorrow. And but if you're, I think your career, you spend what eighty percent. 70% of your life doing a job at least like at, at my age like right now five days a week of my seven week I work mm. so I better like it um and mm. you better set yourself up so that you're the most likely to like your job so I think when mm. you kind of go at it with that reality of like I want to like this so I better invest the time to figure out what I like um and then I think once you've convinced yourself that it's a good idea, then the next step is actually thinking about it. And the way that I've always thought about it in the past, um, what are my longer term goals? When I say longer term, I mean two year goals. I can't think five years in the future. I think it's like, I'm I'm really impressed by people who can, but it's just not something I'm capable of. And then there's kind of the, why are you, why do you not want to do what you're doing right now? It should be really clear in your mind so that you can look for things that that don't exist in the next job. Um, but yeah, I think just sitting and also thinking about what you're good at is really hard. And you should also ask for external input. Um, that's what I found. It's, it's really hard to tell yourself what you're good at. It's way easier for other people to tell you what you're good at. And then once you've kind of gotten some feedback from other people, you can start seeing like themes and things like that. It hurts opening yourself up to that. Oh, it's so That external feedback. Yeah, it's so hard. And I think that it's something that um, asking for feedback is a skill. It's not, and not a lot of people have it. And asking for feedback and not reacting is like an art form. Mm. (laughs) Like I have... I uh, I definitely try to ask for feedback. I'm always offended if someone says something not nice. But you just have to like, mm. they're not saying... And then I think one of the things that I've realized 
or that I say to myself when whenever you're getting feedback is they're saying this to try to help you. They're not saying this to try to hurt you. And if you go at it that way, then it's even if they're saying constructive things, it's with the purpose of helping you, not with the purpose of putting you down. And it, it I mean, I say that to myself, but it still sucks. <laughs> but yeah. Mm. It's, it's like the way that you phrased it there. It sounds like it's a skill to accept the feedback as well as a skill to ask for the feedback. Yeah. 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 Because people won't give you feedback if if you ask for feedback and then they give you feedback and then you react to it and you're like, you start giving excuses for or reasoning why you don't do the mm. thing that they're saying, then they're not going to give you feedback anymore. So there's mm. this kind of accepting constructive criticism with grace is a skill that you need to develop, especially if you're going to progress in your career. Mm. How do you ask the specific questions of an individual to ask them for feedback? So what would you say to someone around you? Like, how would you phrase that question? It probably isn't going to be, tell me what everything that I've gone done wrong over the last seven days and just like kill me on it. But yeah. How would you go about asking those questions? So it's really, it's way easier to give feedback if you're asking for specific feedback. So what I mean is asking someone, what am I doing that's good? is going to lead to much fewer helpful insights than asking someone, oh, we just worked on this project together. How do you think my approach to delivery was? Or how right. do you think my time management was? Um, because then you have examples of why something worked or why it didn't work. Um, and it's way easier to answer it's way easier to give feedback on specific questions. So if someone asks you specifically for their ex your experience working with them on X, it's way easier for you to answer than giving kind of really generic feedback. That takes a long time to think about, especially if you're going to give good feedback. So asking for s feedback on specific tasks or projects that you've worked on will tend to give you better feedback faster. It's funny how your working relationships may be one of the only types of relationships in your life where you can ask for that really specific feedback because you've been through an objective experience in some way that you've shared. It, I, I, would f I can't imagine asking my family, for example, for specific feedback on how I did at the dinner with this family member or and it's almost like we have this opportunity under our nose with our the people we work with to understand ourselves if we can ask those questions that would be such an awkward family holiday like I know it's like okay yeah, especially with okay, your brother kids, this is our family tradition like feedback time <laughs> yeah let's there's so much in that like how how our parents think about us yeah. and, and how they're thinking it's like it's almost maybe a working relationships are some of the only relationships yeah. where we actually can truly take their feedback on without it yeah destroying our kind of freudian mind yeah the best is um the, there's this thing that I do sometimes with people, and I think Hamza and Oliver do it too. I think we've talked about this, but 
You know when someone asks you for feedback, but they don't actually want feedback, they just want you to tell them that they're great? Yeah. That's like, you have to, I've gotten good at asking that. When someone presents you with a problem and you're just like, okay, before you go any deeper in this, like, do you want me to give you solutions or do you want me to just like be here to talk at? Mm. And then they're like, just, I just want to talk to you. And you're like, okay, that's fine. Mm. Mm. <laughs> but I think mm. that it's really easy in, in life to like give feedback where people don't want it. Mm. It's interesting how getting this feedback throughout your journey has changed quite substantially your working definition of what it means to you to do your best work from academia to outgoing but not people manager to individual contributor to person who wants to make it wants to have a say in those big decisions without having to be a people manager what do you think that's a very difficult question if you can only look out those two years but where do you think it goes next and how might your definition of best work change will you ever go back to managing people i think it's kind of oh it's i hate to say it but it's kind of inevitable i think <laughs> i think that i i would love to manage projects so i would i i actually am really enjoying product management um it took took a while to get used to uh, but it definitely fits a lot of my skill sets. I, I really, I, I'm really good at thinking about business impact and it's something that I realized that a lot of people don't, um, can't do kind of naturally or it, it's something that comes quite easily to me. And I think that inevitably if you end up in a higher role you're going to have to work with other people who are in your team um i think that the nice thing is that i have had this experience of managing people and know that i'm not very good at it so when i wouldn't i'm not going to say if i will say when <laughs> i end up having to manage people I will definitely get help from someone who is much more skilled at the things I'm not skilled at. So career planning and career development. And I think that it's, yeah, I also, I'll have to learn how to do it eventually. Um, but I think, as I said before, if it's not something that you like doing, then you shouldn't do it. So I'm going to make sure I find the things that I like about it and, kind of excel in those and get other people to help in the things I'm not good at. If you put the management of people aside, is there still a tension for you between doing your best work as someone on their own and doing your best work as part of a team? Um, do you mean as part of a team like in a company or? it's like as you spoke about that last bit it was the f it was the first time during our conversation where it's it's sounded less about the management of people and more about working alongside other people and the natural tension there is when we pursue our best work and we 
inevitably do come in contact with other people but we can make conscious choices to limit that and actually maybe we do our best work completely on our own um and i wonder where you fit on that spectrum and are you do you know how much contact you want with others in order to do your best work yeah i think that uh i'm very comfortable making decisions independently i also am 100% an advocate for not making decisions alone i think that there's a difference between um deciding something yourself and coming up with that decision by yourself. And I think that you should never come up with things alone. I think that should always be a team effort, but I don't think decision by committee is a good idea 90% of the time. That's like a totally ambiguous mm. effort, but I think that mm. decisions made by independent people tend to be much more quick and you have a person responsible for it. And they just, they tend to be more effective in a business but I think that coming up with that decision should never be an independent person or very rarely, because I think that input from multiple people makes the best decisions. Like diversity of information gives you the best decisions. So it's almost like you want as many people engaged at the beginning as possible, but you want less people engaged at the end when there's decision making which tends to work the opposite way around to the way that you would typically expect it where you expect people to come up with ideas to solutions solutions to problems and then you make a decision on that but you're worried about it so you don't have a single point of failure and you have multiple people make that decision it seems like the opposite way around that you know, you yeah. go about it yeah i guess so yeah i think that um i also think that there's a effective ways of coming up with information as well. Like you, you can't just tell people like brainstorm, you have to like mm. give them ideas um, and structure. But mm. I think that some decisions should be made in a committee. Um, but if you have all the information and everyone's given you the information you need to make a good decision, then you should be able to make a decision on your own. Mm. So I think, there's this skill set around like collecting the right information from the right people. And you should get good at that instead of getting good at like, I don't know, mm. making com committee decisions. Could I extract this out even, even further? When we are <laughs> like creative, we're creative. Uh, being creative is often an individual pursuit. It's something that we, we kind of use the experiences that we've had around us to to build new ways of of the world and um that isn't necessarily that doesn't necessarily happen in a team environment um the difficulty is that for truly creative people when they have those ideas and they need to see those products come to life they do inevitably bump up against needing to build a team to build it and it's it's almost like it requires two different types of people one person who is creative enough to be able to see the world for the for the truth of what it is and and come up with that idea but then secondly the type of person who can not find it painful to go through that experience i personally find it really tricky to balance those two the kind of the 
the the pain of taking this idea that you've had and and it being worked on with other people who might not do it in the way that you want it to and how how do you go about balancing those two parts in your working life yeah it's really hard to to let people do stuff and you're like i know how to do it the best (laughs) um Mm. but Mm. no i think that that is something that if you're working with people who always have the best ideas then they probably are lying to you sometimes and the the way that i've learned to get better at this it's there's something that someone told me actually i think it was amy chen from dbt labs and at dbt they have this thing called strong opinions loosely held and i that resonated with me so much because that's absolutely the way that I strive to work, which is I will always have an opinion for you or 90% of the time, if you ask me a question, I'll have an opinion. But if you give me a good reason why that opinion isn't the best one, then I'll absolutely agree with you to build the better option. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, we're not building a company to show off how great our ideas are. Like we're building a company so that we build a successful company and a successful product and an amazing community. Mm. And if someone else's idea is better than mine, then absolutely we should build their idea. Mm. But I don't not have ideas. And I think that's like the key balance is you have to be able to not get precious about your ideas. And I think there's there's so many ways that you do this, like mental models, deciding on like impact of things, but you have to be comfortable in almost making it not about you, not almost, you have to be comfortable not making it about you Mm. and making it about the business and being like, why would this problem be better solved this way? Um, so yeah, strong opinions loosely held, I think is the way that I approach that where, yeah. What are those, one of those mental models that you use to see it beyond your own self? You, you mentioned it being bigger than you. Mm-hmm. What mental model do you use in order to enable that? Yeah, I think that there's a couple of things. I think um, there's, I mean, they're not really mental models per se. I think they're more just like intuitions that you develop, but the amount of effort something takes like if, if I have an idea and then an engineer tells me a different idea and it takes half the time and it reduces the product impact by 25%, then I'm probably going to do it anyways, especially if it's like not a really important part of the product. So it's kind of more an art than it is a science, but other people are really good at certain things like engineers know really well technical implementations designers are incredible at user experiences and telling you that actually no like this will fundamentally change users experience so i think it's knowing what other people are good at estimating much better at estimating than you are and understanding if the trade-off that you're making by doing it their way is worth it in the long-term impact of what you're going to build. And so it's being really comfortable with kind of, when you come up with an idea, you you know approximately estimates for like technical feasibility, how long it will take, how, how much of an impact it's going to have, um, things like that. And then when you have other options that are brought to you, you're able to quickly kind of estimate in your head 
how different the impacts would be if you did it this way and whether or not it's worth the trade-off. It's almost like you haven't personalized what success means to the project, but you've made it more of an existential thing where what you see as success is something that can be clearly objectively defined that everyone else can work towards yeah rather than it being your your own thing yeah i think if you've defined your company's success as your own success then you're probably not going to be a great person to work with um Mm. because you'll probably think that you're always right um and no one's always right or if they are then like kudos to them because i i've i've never gotten there but yeah, I think that the best people to work with are the people who will give you their opinion on things, but also respect that sometimes other people have better opinions. Um, mm. And it's a hard balance, definitely. Mm. How much skin in the game should you have in that moment? It's, there's, it sounds The balance feels like the right word because you want someone to hang their hat on the success of the company or the group or the team and you want them to have some some skin in that Mm. but at the same time you don't want it to be so much that it overwhelms them and that they just think they're right the whole time yeah i think that i think you can have skin in the game and just not think you're right all the time though i think that's um Mm. i think it's a a personality thing as well you should know you should have skin in the game especially at a startup and i'm very aware that the success of light dash would lead to my success too but I also am very aware that I don't have all the best ideas and all the right answers. And I think yeah. that it's a personality thing as well, or a way of working that some people mm. have um, much more confidence, or not necessarily confidence. I think some people are falsely confident that they know everything. And. Mm. So they also have a lot of skin in the game. So you end up in this horrible situation where you think you're right and you're really relying on this thing to succeed. So anyone else's opinions that are different to yours are just going to get shut down because you don't want to be involved in their future. Um, and I, th- I think that that's, that's, a, that's a toxic work environment that you should really avoid. And my last question is, how would you define your best work now? I think that as, so I do data, but I also do product stuff. And I think for product things, my best work would be when you've made everyone else's jobs really easy. When you've, when you've made an environment that everyone else can do their best work in, then you've done your best job as a product manager um i always say this that that one of the hardest things about being a product manager is you're only told when you're doing something wrong because if you're doing really well no one should notice that you're there um and i think that yeah your best work is almost when when no one notices that you're doing a job it's just that their jobs are so easy perhaps it's not a surprise that the dichotomy of being a product manager is often that you don't have any line management responsibility and so you can have no influence but perhaps on this occasion it sounds like it was deliberate (laughs) yeah 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 maybe (laughs) 
Little do I know. Katie, I've loved our conversation. Like, thank you so much for sharing your story. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. It's been interesting. The Best Work podcast is produced by the team at Cord. I'd love your advice on how we can make sure the Best Work podcast is having a profound impact on the way we all pursue our best work. Email me at benatcord.co. You can also find a transcript of this conversation, insightful video content and more at cord.co slash insights. Thanks for listening.